Hey everyone, welcome to the Goodbye Privacy Podcast. I'm your host, James Azar. Find me on Twitter, James underscore Azar1, or follow our page at CyberHub Engage, E-N-G-A-G-E, where you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and I'm sure I'm missing one or two more networks that we are on. So make sure you subscribe there. Make sure you subscribe to our newsletter at CyberHubEngage.com to get updates and real-time exclusive content that you wouldn't get unless you are a newsletter subscriber. And on today's episode, we are going to talk about the real data cartels. So from the moment we started this podcast, our hashtag has been data cartels, and we are going to be talking about the credit bureaus today, as well as the attack on Instagram and the battle for free speech. But before we get started, as you know, we are a small, tiny podcast out of Atlanta, Georgia, and we don't have a lot of sponsors. So we're looking for sponsors, but one of the things we won't compromise on when we talk to sponsors is our content. So you can support us by going to patreon.com forward slash cyberhubengage, that's patreon.com forward slash cyberhubengage. And you can support us for as little as $1 a month where you would get a shout out at our, um, on one of our podcasts. And for as little as $10, you can get a bunch of exclusive access to our podcast and to a lot of the content that we produce each and every single day as we work tirelessly to investigate and create content around our privacy and security that people constantly overlook. So make sure you go to patreon.com forward slash cyberhubengage. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash cyberhubengage. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cyberhubengage where you can support our podcast and our series of podcasts, including this very one you're listening to right now, Goodbye Privacy, or our Cyberhub Engage podcast, or are beyond the breach, which will be releasing very, very soon. That's it. So let's get to one of our first stories I really want to talk about today, which is the uh, uh, DDoS attack on Telegram. So on Wednesday, June 12th, the Telegram app, the secured Telegram messaging app went down. No one could use it, including myself. And I am an avid Telegram user. We do have a Telegram channel of our own. You can look it up, CyberHub Engage, and you can join us there and ask questions and kind of connect with us. Um, We share a lot of different stuff on our Telegram channel. And Telegram went down. I was a bit concerned. I was like, weird. And the CEO of Telegram, uh, Pavel uh, Durov, uh, went on Twitter and said that we are experiencing an attack mostly from Chinese IP addresses and of Chinese origin. And that kind of coincides with the unrest that's been going on for the last week in Hong Kong. So if you've been oblivious to the news that are coming out of Hong Kong, uh, over the last week there's been millions of protesters marching the streets of Hong Kong. In fact, the U.S. State Department issued a protest advisory for Americans traveling in Hong Kong uh, to be very careful where they walk and where they go simply uh, due to the amount of police and um, protesters that are on the street. Tear gas has been used against the protesters, and this appears to be China's way of trying to subdue these protests 
since Telegram is the messaging app that everyone is using there to coordinate the protest and where they are going. Now, the protest in Hong Kong are for a new bill that would allow for the extradition of Hong Kong citizens and residents to be tried in mainland Chinese court. So the history behind Hong Kong is it was under British mandate rule until about 1997 when it was handed over to the Chinese, but it had a set of its own rules, meaning it was its own autonomous region, um, and China simply had um, uh, kind of like a, uh, a control over it, but not really, and this is just one other way where uh, mainland China is really trying to uh, enforce its own laws on Hong Kong. And so Telegram was a victim of that battle. And they have recovered since. Obviously, the messaging app was down for about three to four hours. Um, they've recovered since. But this is another uh, blatant attack on how specific governments kind of go after uh, messaging platforms to really... Um, get this stuff done. So this is no coincidence. I'm sure this won't be the first time we've seen this happen, not only in China, but in Iran, in other places around the world. Um, and so we'll sure we'll see more of this as we go forward. But now I want to move to today's episode, the credit bureaus. Um, who are they and how did they get such a stronghold on collecting data without consent? Let's start by saying that in the United States today, you can't even get a phone plan without a credit check. And our credit pretty much determines everything we do as adults. So let's explore how all of this works. First of all, there's the credit bureaus. And the credit bureaus, what started in the U.S. is now a global business, uh, a big global business. So a credit bureau, and listen to this, folks, this is the definition is a data collection agency that gathers account information from various creditors and provides that information to a consumer reporting agency. And in the U.S., they're called consumer reporting agencies. In the United Kingdom, they're credit reference agency. In Australia, they're credit reporting body. In India, they're credit information company. And in the Philippines, they're special assessing entity. Um, and they also report this to private lenders. And these are not the same as credit rating agencies, although they all kind of mix it up, but they just have different bodies. A consumer reporting agency is an organization providing information on individuals' borrowing and bill-paying habits. Credit information such as a person's previous loan performance is a powerful tool to predict his or her future behavior. Such credit information institutions reduce the effect of asymmetric information between borrowers and lenders and alleviate problems of adverse selection and moral hazard. For example, adequate credit information could facilitate lenders in screening and monitoring borrowers as well as avoiding giving loans to high-risk individuals. This helps lenders assess creditworthiness, the ability to pay back a loan, and can affect the interest rate and other terms of a loan. Interest rates are not the same for everyone, but instead can be based on risk-based pricing, a form of price discrimination based on the different expected risks of different borrowers as set out in their credit rating. Consumers with poor credit uh, repayment histories or court 
educated debt obligations like tax liens or bankruptcies will pay a higher annual interest rate than consumers who don't have these factors. Additionally, decision makers in areas unrelated to consumer credit, including employment screening and underwriting of property and casualty insurance, increasingly depend on credit record as studies have shown that such records have predictive value. At the same time, consumers also benefit from a good credit information system because it reduces the effect of credit monopoly from banks and provides incentives for borrowers to repay their loans on time. In the U.S., consumer reporting agencies collect and aggregate personal information, financial data, and alternative data on individuals from from a variety of sources called data furnishers, with which the reporting agencies have a relationship. Data furnishers are typically either creditors, lenders, utilities, debt collection agencies, and the courts that a consumer has had a relationship or an experience with. Data furnishers report their payment experience with the consumer to the credit reporting agencies. The data provided by the furnishers, as well as collected by the bureaus, are then aggregated into a consumer reporting agency's data repository or files. The resulting information is made available on request to customers of a consumer reporting agency for the purpose of credit risk assessment. Credit scoring or for other purposes, such as employment consideration or leasing an apartment, given the large number of consumer borrowers, these credit scores tend to be mechanistic. To simplify the analytical process for their customers, the different consumer reporting agencies can apply a mathematical algorithm to provide a score the customer can use to more rapidly assess the likelihood of an ind- of, that an individual will repay a particular debt given the frequency that other individuals in similar situations have defaulted. Most consumer welfare advocates advise individuals to review their credit reports at least once a year to ensure they are accurate. In the United States, you can request your credit report for free. There's websites like Credit Karma and others that give you access to your credit at any point period in time. In addition to providing credit information, these services have become authoritative sources of identity information against which people can be verified using an identity verification service and knowledge-based authentication. And we're going to get to this topic later in the podcast, but this is a very, very um, uh, important issue right here, and we're going to get into that a little bit later. In the United States, there's no legal term for a credit bureau under the Federal Fair Credit Reporting Act, the FCRA. A consumer reporting agency is often abbreviated in the industry as a CRA. In the United States, um, key consumer reporting agency consumer protections and general rules or governing guidelines for both the consumer reporting agency and data furnishers are the uh, Federal Fair Credit Reporting Act, FCRA, a fair and uh, the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act (FACTA) and a Credit Billing Act (FCBA) and Regulation B. Two government bodies share responsibility for the oversight of consumer reporting agencies, those that furnish and and those that furnish data to them. The FTC is one of them. The Federal Trade Commission has oversight over the consumer reporting agencies, and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the OCC, charters, regulates, and supervises all national banks with regard to the data they furnish consumer reporting agencies. Most U.S. consumer credit information is collected and kept by four national traditional consumer reporting agencies, Experian, Equifax, TransUnion, and Innovus, which was purchased from First Data in 1999 by CBC companies. These organizations, these credit information companies, are for-profit businesses and possess no government affiliation whatsoever. Though they are competitors, they are members of a trade organization called the Consumer Data 
Industry Association. Hmm. To establish reporting standards and lobby on behalf of their industry issues in Washington, D.C. Current reporting standards accepted by the four U.S. CRAs are Metro and Metro 2. The Metro 2 standard is defined in the annual CDIA publication, the Credit Reporting Resource Guide. Consumers are entitled to a free credit report once a year from the three nationwide consumer reporting agencies. And consumer can go to annualcreditreport.com to get that. Again, that's annualcreditreport.com. The internet site is maintained by both three companies, and that's where you can get your free credit report if you reside in the U.S. There are dozens of other similar information collection and reporting firms that analyze and sell information about consumer for other purposes. We spoke about this last week in our data bro- in our, uh, on our data brokers episode. So if you haven't listened to that, make sure you go back and listen to it. We've spoken about it in previous episodes as well. Um, so you can actually go back and realize that these credit bureaus are in fact, and some of them are registered as data brokers, by the way, just so that for full disclosure, Every single one of these credit agencies are also data brokers. Um, Atop of what they do, they have other businesses where they take the data that they collect and resell it as well. So there are, um, moving on, so there are also non-traditional credit reporting agencies. The PRBC, the Payment Reporting Builds Credit Incorporation, is a national alternative credit bureau incorporated in March of 2002. The PRBC enables consumers to self-enroll and build positive credit file by by reporting their on-time payments, stuff that typically doesn't get reported into your credit like your rent, your utilities, your cable and phone uh, that are not automatically reported. In the U.S., there are six businesses or commercial bureau repositories, and I'm going to read them out in alphabetical order. So it's Corterra, Dun & Bradstreet, Experian Business, Equifax Commercial, Paynet, and Southeastern Association of Credit Management. While not a credit reporting agency, Small Business Financial Exchange is not a for-profit trade association for small business lenders from all types of industry. The SBFE gathers and protects small business payment data for its members to help build a true and accurate picture of of small business, then facilitates the exchange of that data to specific business credit reporting agencies that have a certified vendor licensing agreement with the SBFE. The SBFE only allows business credit reporting agencies to license its members' data for risk management purposes, market for risk management purposes only. Marketing use of the data is not allowed by the SBFE. So you see that the industry in the last decade or two has started to build outside of the traditional three big bodies, the Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. And we're starting to see smaller bodies come in and try to be better um, judges at it. Having said that, there's still a lot of work to be done, and I want to kind of keep going on this. But before we proceed, I want to invite you to apply to join us on September 11th, 2019 in Atlanta, Georgia for the annual CyberHub Summit. CyberHub Summit is an annual event that happens in Atlanta, Georgia. I will be co-hosting, I will be hosting the event this year, I'm sorry. And we have an amazing agenda in plan, the Entire event is essentially a large cybersecurity exercise um, focused on the supply chain and third-party risks for organizations, as well as highlighting some of the challenges 
um, with state actors targeting businesses in the U.S. To apply to attend, go to cyberhubsummit.com forward slash James. Again, that's cyberhubsummit forward slash James. Again, that's cyberhubsummit forward slash James. Um, to apply to attend, the event is very limited. It is not open to the public, and you must be an executive in an organization that is not a cybersecurity vendor in order to attend. So I wanted to get that out of the way. So if you're a cybersecurity vendor and you're listening and you want to attend, unfortunately, you're unable to do so, but you can go to cyberhubsummit.com and look at their uh, sponsor opportunities and talk to them about partnering to be part of the event. Now back to our episode. In the United States, a percentage of credit reports provided by consumer reporting agencies contain inaccuracies. According to the U.S. General Accounting Office, common causes of errors broadly fall into one of two categories, inclusion of incorrect information and exclusion of correct information. Reasons for the inaccuracy include consumers providing inaccurate information to the consumer reporting agencies, incorrect or incomplete data input by furnishers, or failing to provide data to the consumer reporting agencies, and incorrect or incomplete data or data applied to the wrong consumer by the consumer reporting agencies. According to Avery Kalem Canner in the Credit Report Accuracy and Access to Credit, the parties that bear cost of correcting the errors or providing more timely and complete information, meaning the data furnishers and consumer reporting agencies, may not receive much benefit from the improvement in accuracy. The formula to calculate credit scores by a consumer reporting agency is proprietary and considered a trade secret of the agency in the United States. So here's where this comes in. Your whole life, your whole career, your whole borrowing process is based on the fact of your credit score. You can't buy a house, you can't buy a car, you can't rent an apartment. Um, You definitely can't get a credit card if you don't have any sort of credit. But then the people who are obliged to report on your credit, if they make a mistake, it can take you years to fight this. And there's been documented cases of this. Um, if you just go to YouTube and 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 just you know search, uh, you know credit agencies destroyed my life. There's numerous stories uh, by mainstream media sources as well as by independent people who are sharing real life stories on how. They've been either victims of identity theft, how people have misused that information and have caused them not only hardship, but it could have caused them employment opportunities as well, simply because many employers actually check someone's credit history to determine whether or not they hire them. Some consumer uh, reporting agencies in the U.S. provide two credit scores, an educational score to the consumer and a customary FICO-like score to the lender or business. Liz Weston writes that some consumer advocates refer to these other educational credit scores as FACO scores, a play on on the acronym of FICO. In consideration of the fact that algorithms which rate people are used in a discriminatory fashion to deny people's legal rights, employment insurance credit, those very algorithms act as law. The law says that if one does this or if one does that, then they will be afforded different treatments and opportunity. What needs to be done, though, remains a secret, which is exactly case in point. No one knows how to obtain good credit. Fact is, you can have great credit for years and years and years, and you can fall on a six-month hardship, which could, which could destroy your credit, and all the years and years and years and years that you've done something well go out the door just like that. 
and there's no real way to fix it. Meaning stuff on your credit typically stays there for a minimum of seven years, even longer at times. There are loopholes to extend it. And furthermore, there is no clear or open process to understand how your FICO score is calculated, discrimination on this on 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 FICO on FICO scores and credit reporting agencies is a real a real thing. Therefore, people are called on to abide by a secret law. At least two things need to be examined. First is that the operation of a more general chilling effect that imposing a non-disclosed law may have. And secondly, the social effects of discrimination, which take which take on an entirely new light in the context of no longer discriminating against race, creed, color, age, or religion, but on the basis of a number, a number which has been assigned to all members of society reflecting information about the person which is unknown. Accordingly, there can be no definition at present of what information credit repositories collect or even what the use of that information is or what it reflects. These questions can only be answered if the algorithms were publicized and expert statisticians (laughs) were permitted to examine them and improve on the intent of the model, which intent is also undisclosed. So here's the fact. You're being discriminated against because of... uh, algorithm that no one has access to because it's considered a trade secret but if you notice your credit score between all three credit agencies is typically within a 10 point similarity on average so their algorithms are extremely similar and you have no way of really fixing it according to david uh, suswak a partner in bodenheimer jones and swak which specializes in insurance law and litigation against consumer reporting agencies. Some consumer reporting agencies in the United States maintain a VIP database of special consumers such as members of Congress, judges, actors, and celebrities. The VIP database is specifically administered by the Bureau, which ensures the credit report of that of the consumer is accurate and not negatively handled. The, da- the database exists because individuals in the VIP database could cause significant problems for the bureaus, including negative publicity and legislative action, which could adversely affect the industry. So far, an economic model to describe this industry in this industry has not been attempted, while the fundamentals are counterintuitive to any market known since other industries, finance, banking, and insurance, sponsor consumer reporting agencies to process information while consumer pay CRAs to receive that information, the utility of the consumer is hard to calculate since the consumer is given no recourse to correct mistakes processed about them. Hence, the dynamics of this triangle involve consumers, credit reporters, and sponsoring industries remain undefined. So, Mr. Soswak, and I hope I'm saying his name right here, um, brings up a very, very valid point. One, there's clear discrimination because people who can create damage who are, let's say, celebrities, judges, legislatures, people who have money, who can fight the credit reporting bureaus, they're given more attention than the average person because the average person can't do anything about it. So there's your first level of discrimination. Next up is the fact that that is absolutely no way to really understand and comprehend how consumers can protect themselves against these credit reporting agencies. The other part of that, and I said that earlier, which is 
They collect so much data without our consent, meaning we do not consent for our data to be collected. We consent through third-party contracts, no different than in the first episode when we were talking about terms and conditions online. When you go to buy a car and you sign the buying purchase agreement, one of the clause on there that no one ever goes, no one ever goes over it. No one does. I've bought many cars and no one's ever explained it to me is when you take a loan, you're agreeing for us to report the status of this loan to the credit reporting agencies. Furthermore, let's say, and we spoke about this uh, uh, a little bit earlier, your rent, your utilities, your other payments. They tell you, we don't report this to the credit agencies unless you're delinquent, meaning you pay us on time. That's fine. Great. Good job. But the second you're late, we reserve the right to go and report it. It's the credit score and credit bureaus are used as a blackmail attempt to get consumers to agree to pay any amount of money because once you get one bad mark on your credit, it entails you having to spend more money to get money that you need to survive. There's no real clear laws around this specific predatory behavior with credit reporting agencies. Furthermore, there's no regulation requiring them to protect, defend, and authenticate our information. And that will take me to Equifax. So we've all heard of the Equifax breach, the largest data breach in the U.S. when it comes to private information. Mind you, there's been bigger data breaches when it comes to the amount of people impacted. Uh, Marriott's one of them. A few others have been there. But Equifax, by large, was the largest data breach in history when it comes in U.S. history, folks when it comes to the amount of data that was breached. And there's been no real repercussions for Equifax post this. Now there's three pend pending lawsuits against Equifax, one from consumers, one from shareholders, and another one from, I believe, companies and vendors. So there's three different class action lawsuits that are being handled against Equifax for the breach. But there's no law or no regulation in place to hold these companies that collect our data and process our data and impact every single part of our life. There's no law, no legislation, no nothing in the books that requires them to adhere to safe security practices. None. None at all. So let's look at Equifax. And the reason I, I, I look at Equifax is because they are the largest. We're not beating on a dead horse um, on, on this specific aspect, but Congress did investigate the Equifax breach. Nothing's come out of it. Outside of an investigative report, there's no new legislation. The one thing they have done, the one thing they have done, and I will say this, is they've made it so now you can freeze your credit without having to pay these credit bureaus anymore. So before the Equifax breach, if you wanted to freeze your credit, it would cost you an average of $3 to freeze it and $3 to unfreeze it. That way no one can really take a loan out on your credit minimizing your identity theft. So they don't have any laws regulating to these credit reporting agencies and credit bureaus that they need to protect our information and to have a responsibility to do so. No laws whatsoever on the books to do that. They charge us money to freeze it. And Equifax was doing that immediately following their breach. They said, we'll give everyone one year 
one free year of credit monitoring after that you pay us you know 10 bucks a month so they stand to make money out of their failure and you know i'm not a big fan of senator uh, elizabeth warren but when rick smith the ceo the former ceo of equifax was on the hill testifying she blatantly called him out on it and that may have been one of the better parts of that testimony was that very aspect of you're giving people one year free credit monitoring when all cybersecurity experts say that no one is likely to use that information within the first year. In fact, as hackers and people who have malicious intent with that information will wait two to three to four years to really start utilizing it. So they're really brushing you off. And by agreeing to the one year, you, um, you forfeit your right to come back with any further claims against Equifax in the future as well. So the congressional report that came out was a 98-page congressional report. Equifax tried to blame this on one employee, one person. They said one person didn't forward the email, and that's why the breach really happened. A, a, a bunch of crap, but the report covers the company actions and the governmental actions in response. And it really broke very little information that was unknown that the media didn't cover. Fact is 148 million people were affected by the breach. Fact is Equifax waited six weeks to disclose the breach. Six weeks to disclose the breach. There are data notification breach laws in the books across the U.S. Every state has a different data breach notification law. That's a whole other topic that we can talk about at a later episode. And those six weeks where they had internal trading where people and executives who were aware of the breach and aware of the consequences were selling stock to protect their financial interests. There were activities that were done within Equifax to try and cover this up. And it took them six weeks to report it to the consumers from the moment they discovered it in July until the moment they notified the general public in the beginning of September. They acted as if business was normal to everyone outside of the insider people. So records that came out of the breach was credit card information, driver's license number, social security numbers, date of birth, phone numbers, and email addresses. Here's the other part that no one talks about. Your, your entire credit report was essentially breached. So today, when you go to open a bank account online or get a loan online, you're often asked to verify and authenticate your identity. Where did you live with? Where did you live before? In these years, where were you? Well, that information is now readily available. That authentication method is really no longer viable. So... But no one's really talking about that. And the attackers, um, the breach, which went undetected for 76 days, and the attackers made 9,000 queries that were unnoticed due to failure to keep a network data inspection system up to date. And that system hadn't worked for 10 months, and no one in the Equifax staff even cared. And the attacker accessed a database that contained unencrypted credentials that they used to access other internal databases. And the company said that they were going to budget to add an additional 
$200 million this year for security and technology. Although that's not been the case, a recent report said that Equifax spent $1.4 billion uh, since the breach. Uh, that's how much the breach really cost them, around $1.4 billion. That's with a B, folks. Um, eight state banking regulate, regulators imposed a consent order on Equifax in June requiring security improvement, auditing, and reporting. Um, California passed a law earlier this year that forces disclosures about the collection of personal data and imposes a significant fine for data breaches up to $750 per violation, and that's the consumer, uh, the California Consumer Protection, Aid, uh, Protection Act, the Privacy Act, I'm sorry, CCPA. Alabama and North Dakota passed laws forcing notification about reporting breaches with penalties for delays. In Alabama, breach must reported with 60 days, within 60 days, or a company faces a fine of up to $10,000 per violation. And in North Dakota, it's 45 days and $5,000 each. So some states have taken this, you know, extensive, but when you think of the ones who did it, Alabama and North Dakota, I don't think they have a population of over a million. I didn't check that. But that doesn't equate to anything when these companies make billions of dollars. At the federal level, the president signed a bill in May that includes a free credit freeze and thaws at the three largest credit reporting agencies. And again, this comes past the Equifax where it could have been five or ten dollars, five to ten dollars. On average, it's three to, to thaw um, your credit report when you want to use it. The law also lets consumers report potential credit fraud to one credit bureau and that one credit bureau needs to report it to all the others. The alert now lasts for a year instead of the previous 90 days. With the alert in effect, the bureau must take additional steps to verify an identity. So some changes have been made, but not enough. Two criminal charges have been levied for those for insider trader against the company's former chief information security officer, John Ying, and against a company software developer for allegedly selling stock while knowing the breach before it was made public. We spoke about that earlier. The way they handled it also became absolutely, absolutely horrible. Senator Elizabeth Warren co-sponsored a bill with Mark Warner in January of this year that would give the FTC more direct supervisory power over credit reporting agencies like Equifax and impose the ability to levy fines. Those fines would have amounted to $1.5 billion in the case of this breach. That's significant relative to revenue and profit. Equifax took in $877 million in its most recent quarter and earned $145 million on that. In the comedy of blame following the breach, Equifax sent the CEO at the time of the breach, Richard Smith, to testify before Congress. And in the first of four separate hearings, Smith repeatedly blamed the breach on a single employee who failed to update the software on one server. I will have that employee, hopefully, on our podcast very, very soon. We were supposed to have him on a few weeks ago, and unfortunately, we um, we, we got a uh, uh, heat he was hit with a uh, uh, an, a challenge uh, for him to talk about the book that he wrote about the Equifax breach. And that gets me to the following, folks. When you... When you look at this entirely, you look at the entire picture painted here by these credit bureaus, there's no real repercussions for them there's no real standard for them to protect our information and finally 
there's no real price to pay because Equifax is still in business. Their stock has recovered to its post uh to its pre-breach numbers. It's actually exceeded them recently. And the consumers, the consumers are the ones that suffer. We suffer. Our privacy has been tarnished. And there's no price for that. And and that's the challenge with our legal system. Our legal system doesn't allow us to claim something uh, where we can't prove damages. And how do you prove damage to your privacy? There's no number for that. Equifax will continue to thrive while consumers continue to pay the price. And that's just the rule of the law going forward. And that's the challenge here. I have to say that while I was getting ready for this episode for the last month or so, I'm very calm and collected, but had I done this podcast, I think two weeks ago, I would have been at the height of my agitate, uh, height of uh, an annoyance by it, simply because of the lack of complete oversight and the lack of ownership over something so critical to our daily lives. Our credit score is a random score that has no real myth, myth, no public mythology behind it that allows us to understand how it works and how we can leverage it to be better at it outside of telling us pay your bills on time well that's like telling your kid hey you need to drink a glass of milk a day to grow that was a milk industry lobby to get people to drink more milk but scientifically there's been stuff around it to prove that that's not always true that there are other ways for kids to grow outside of just drinking a glass of milk a day so these credit reporting agencies are out there they're collecting our data they're selling our data the data that they collect and sell dictates our borrowing rates our employment opportunities and there's no repercussions to these private for-profit companies to have any sort of standard towards the consumer because the consumer doesn't have any other option. We don't have an option outside of the three big credit reporting agencies. We don't. They don't compete against each other. They formed a union. They have one body that represents them. So even as consumers, this is not like a... Coca-Cola and a Pepsi, which through, through antitrust litigations, that racket was eventually broken up. This racket's been going on for much longer than Coke and Pepsi did. And it's making way more money than Coke and Pepsi did. And it impacts our life way more than Coke and Pepsi did. There's a movie on the Coke and Pepsi uh, price fixing with the guy who became the whistleblower um, starring Matt Damon. I forgot the name of the movie. But the same applies, folks, with credit reporting agencies. No one has bothered coming down and giving us as consumers a right to dispute how our score is calculated. If you want to fight a negative report on your credit, it's a long battle folks it's very frustrating and it's destroyed people's lives i wanted to talk about some of those cases on the podcast i really did 
but I'd get so outraged and it would take me so much more time. This wouldn't be a 45-minute podcast. It'd be much, much longer to talk about those stories. People's livelihoods have been destroyed due to errors from credit reporting agencies and the credit reporting agency not taking it seriously. They're not taking it seriously because they don't take our privacy or our security seriously as proven by the Equifax case. The company culture around security was horseshit. Their culture was crap when it came to it. They tried to blame it on one employee rather than an entire culture. Rick Smith walked away with a $90 million compensation package for being a failed CEO of a credit reporting agency. He walked away with $90 million, folks. Quite the severance. Quite the severance for Rick Smith. And we as consumers have no rights whatsoever to that. You can write your congressmen and senators, and I think if we increase the public pressure, we might be able to get some legislation done and some laws around credit reporting agencies. We might be able to, because I feel like that's a bipartisan issue. I feel like that supersedes Republican and Democrat. That supersedes left and right. That supersedes conservative and liberal. Because I think no matter what your political view is or your social view is, I think all of us can come to one agreement. If we are being scored, we are entitled to know how our score is calculated. If someone's collecting our information without our direct consent, we should be entitled to know how they collect our information and how they secure our information and how they monitor our information and how they protect our information that can cause us significant damage. And there are real collateral stories to that. We're not talking in the if. We're talking in this is happening every single day to millions of Americans. And credit bureaus are no longer a U.S. thing. They are everywhere, folks. Everywhere. In every country in the world today, Equifax, Experian, and others have gone on and created their own credit reporting agencies for those countries. The model that works here is now being duplicated across every country in the world. And these companies today probably possess more information on a consumer globally than some governments. And there's no laws requiring. That's why we call them the data cartels, folks. That's why they're data cartels. Because no one no one is dealing with them. They operate like a cartel. They have their own inner body, no different than a mafia. They don't really care about the people they technically are supposed to report on. And we don't have any voice against those companies because an average person can do nothing. They made $145 million, last Equifax did, last quarter. This breach cost them $1.4 billion, and they're still alive. So what does that tell you? We don't stand a chance unless we come together and push forth some sort of accountability for these organizations. I'm going to pause and stop here. I want to talk about the freedom of speech and the fight on the freedom of speech that's been going on and end with that. So a few things about that. So we're, we're starting to see more and more people come through and more and more organizations try to limit 
what people do and say um, across different aspects of freedom of speech online. And a lot of that is, if I don't agree with what you say, fine. I'll block you. I'll demonetize you. We saw that happen with Stephen Crowder. I did a whole episode on it last week on the YouTube ban. But now we're starting to see it in news publications. More and more voices are being quieted down. There is a real threat on our ability to express our opinions and our beliefs across various platforms without any repercussion. Our right to see both sides and make a decision is slowly disappearing. And a small group of a few is dictating what it's like for the majority. And this has always been the case in human history, right? The few that make a lot of noise get things done their way. But there comes a time where the quiet majority needs to make their voice heard. I don't want seven different social media platforms that are divided and dictated based on your political views because then you are no you are no long, you're you're not able to make an informed decision about a topic anymore. If I'm conservative about topic A, about the limit of government power, about how government should be small and shouldn't be big. How government really has three responsibilities. Foreign policy, defense, and infrastructure. Then I may go to a conservative website that supports those views, but then I'm not able to see the other side of the argument because it's not going to be there because it'll probably be censored. No different than what's happening today on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And we're not going to go into conspiracy theories. We're going to go into the fact that most of these organizations are in places that are um, extremely political that have employees who have personal opinions and those personal opinions impact the way you do your job. They impact the way you judge others because you're given power. And as we've seen in history, anytime you give people power, there's consequences to that. And we're at that point right now. So I challenge us as people to demand that no voice be censored unless it's extreme and absolute vile hate. If it's white supremacist, if it's Nazi propaganda, it should be banned. If it's Islamic hate speech against all other population, whether it be, you know, Sunni uh, Sunni versus Shia, Shia versus Sunni, or Sunni versus the Western world, or otherwise, that should be censored. That's a call to violence on both sides. But if someone disagrees with you and calls you a name, and you can't handle that and you censor that person, then folks, we're in big trouble. And we're heading that down that road right now. And it's a dark road. And I pray to God we at some point or another turn around and realize that we need to get out of this dark road and into the light. And I don't know that Congress is the right people to do this. I mean, although we have to look at them because we always look at them for law. But we as consumers also have way more say than our legislators do. That's it for today's episode of Goodbye Privacy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you follow us on our social media channels by looking up CyberHub Engage. Goodbye Privacy does not have its own social media channels yet. Um, 
You can mail us in your questions through our website at cyberhubengage.com. You can reach out to me on Twitter, James underscore Azar1. And you can follow us on all social medias, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Telegram, and so forth. Next time on the Goodbye Privacy Podcast, we're going to talk about Apple and its illusion of privacy. That's it for this time. More next week.